Romans 5. Now listen, um, understand my background. I am from a very Armenian background uh, where my theology is really it's centered on man making a choice to save himself. When we talk about the grace of God in Armenian theology, we're really talking about the grace in the extension of the gift, not the grace in which saves you as opposed to uh, more Calvinistic theology. Uh, understand that I'm not seeking to offend, uh, but I will be direct. The goal is not to give you my opinion, but uh, to talk about what the Scriptures say. And I believe they clearly convey uh, that God is in the center of salvation and not man. Uh, we've been studying the doctrine of anthropology, this short study. And what we're going to end with today is we're going to end with total depravity. But before we can really deal properly with total depravity, we really need to deal with original sin. Uh, I prefer the term inherited sin. I believe it's a less confusing term and gives you a better word picture than that of original sin. In my mind, the key to understanding total depravity is to understand the doctrine of inherited sin. So, Romans chapter 5. Uh, before we get into this, let's uh, pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for uh, Your Word. I thank You that we can go to it and that You do not lie, You do not deceive, You tell us the truth about who we are, and you tell us the truth about uh, what changes us. And so I pray, Lord, today that you would open our minds and hearts to your word, that your spirit would work and help us to take these things in, Lord, because they do affect our theology and our understanding of ourself and our understanding of how we are uh, in this fallen world. And so give us this understanding that we might uh, look to your word, uh, look to your spirit uh, for uh, the grace to be more and more like Christ. And we just just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 5. In the first 11 verses of the chapter, we see that God justifies the sinner based on faith alone. And I want you to understand that you'll see that Faith is uh, also a gift from God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Neither grace nor faith is of your own doing, but it is the gift of God. So the faith to believe is a gift from God, uh, not something we muster up in ourselves. In Romans 5, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, in verses 12 through 21, begins a comparison between Adam and Christ. And let's look at verse 12 to start off with Romans 5:12 says therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin now understand what Paul is not talking about he's not talking about the sins that people commit uh, because the entire paragraph there, verses 12 through 21, is a comparison between Adam and Christ. Now in verse 12, Paul says, And so, 
So is the Greek word there, hutos, which means in this way. So we could read the latter part of verse 12 like this. In this way, through Adam's sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. He is saying that through the sin of Adam, all sinned. You might say to yourself, Pastor, we know this, but I say we have to really get this. We have to really embrace this and understand it because it affects so much of our theology. You can talk to people about the gospel and people will easily admit that they sin, that they're a sinner. You ask them if they've lied and they will say yes. But 99.9% of the people that you talk to don't see them as God sees them, as wicked, under the wrath of God, and headed for eternal hell. Many people admit that they are sinners, but then they would still turn around in the very next breath and say that they are a worthy candidate for heaven because of how they've lived their life. So we must understand that this is God's view of every human being. All have sinned. When Adam disobeyed, it meant that God now views every single individual that has come into the world, is in the world, or will be in the world as a sinner under the wrath of God except for Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and 14 of Romans 5. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Paul is pointing out that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, people did not have God's written law. It says that their sins were not imputed. Now that does not mean that they did not sin. In fact, the point is the opposite in the verse. There was no law for them to have infractions against, to disobey. But the fact that they died was proof that God counted them guilty on the basis of Adam's sin in the garden. Because there is death, because we die, it shows that God views us in Adam in the garden. He was our representative. And when the representative failed, when he disobeyed, when he sinned, all of those that come from him are now sinners by nature, except Jesus Christ, who had no sin nature, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. Scripture makes it clear that we are not blank slates. For we are under condemnation. We deserve eternal hell because we are by nature sinners. Look at verses 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 5. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be appointed righteous. When Adam sinned, God thought of all who are descendants from Adam as sinners. Even though we did not exist yet, God, knowing that we would exist, began thinking of us as those who are guilty in Adam. 
God counted Adam's guilt as belonging to us. And since God is the ultimate judge of all things in the universe, and since his thoughts are always true, Adam's guilt does in fact belong to us. It has been imputed to us by God. Inevitably, people are going to protest this point because really what Paul is saying is that the sin of Adam is our sin. Yes. belongs to us. And so people say, how can I be counted guilty because of Adam's sin? That doesn't seem very fair. I was not there. I didn't actually decide to eat the fruit in the garden. How can I be counted guilty? And my first response to a person that brings up such a protest is... Have you not voluntarily committed sin in your own life? On the basis alone you are guilty. On the basis of that alone you're guilty and you will be judged according to your works. Romans 2.6 and Colossians 3.25 says that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. Next, I would usually bring up the point uh, that says... What would say that we would have done something different if we were in Adam's place in the garden? Nothing does. Nothing says that my character is better than Adam and that anything would have resulted differently. But the major point when somebody says that this is unfair to be represented by Adam in the garden and his disobedience constitutes my disobedience, then we would have to say that God is unfair, that Christ is our representative with his life and death and paying for my sins as well. If it is unfair that the sin of Adam is imputed to us by God, then it is also unfair that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us as well. So I want you to understand our diagnosis is very bleak when it comes to what the Scripture says. And if we miss this point on inherited sin, then we're not going to see ourselves as totally depraved. We're not going to see ourselves, we're going to see ourselves as having some sort of spark within us. Some sort of something that can be awakened by ourselves and we can have faith in and of ourselves which is just simply not biblical. We need to understand that sin is more about who we are than what we do. If you do not have a grasp of inherited sin, then the doctrines of grace will seem unfair. But when you realize how entrenched in sin you are to the point that you are spiritually dead, then you begin to see the doctrines of grace not as this, these doctrines that teach that God is unfair and He only chooses some, but you begin to see how gracious God is and that He decided to choose anybody at all. You don't see the rigidness of God in these doctrines. You're seeing the grace and beauty of God and that He is willing to save some when He is not obligated to save any. It is a miracle of grace. So now with that understanding of ourselves, let's deal with total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. It simply means that all parts of us, all aspects of our life are sinful or corrupt. Many Armenians believe that total depravity means all men are sinners. But in Calvinism, it is more than that. It means that all parts of all men are sinful. We're corrupt in all areas of our life. 
And because we are corrupt in every part of our life, it puts us in a totally corrupt state in that we are not able to respond to the gospel without God. We believe that sinful man deserves far more punishment than he realizes, for he is far worse than he knows or wants to believe about himself. As human beings, we tend to lower the standard, which the standard is God. We tend to think of God more like a man. We tend to, to, tend to elevate ourself and, and look at our sin and see that it's not as bad as some might think. And when we do that, we see the possibility of ourselves being able to turn to God. But when we take the biblical viewpoint, God's viewpoint of His absolute purity and holiness and our absolute corruption, then you begin to see total depravity for what it is. So total depravity is more than just being a sinner or committing extreme cases of sin. We do not say that only gross criminals like Hitler are totally depraved and the rest of us are not. But that is how the world would look at that. But we would say that even the least sinner with the fewest sins is totally depraved. Illustrate it this way. Human beings are like cups. Some cups are larger than other cups. But each of us are filled to the brim with corruption. So Hitler had a larger cup than us. Stalin had a larger cup than Hitler. Our cups are smaller than theirs, but they are still full of sin and corruption. So total depravity means that the very nature of man has been so thoroughly affected by inherited sin that every part of his being is under the control of sin. There is not a single part of man that has not been fatally infested. He is infected with the disease of sin from head to toe, inside and out, top to bottom. Wickedness flows from the wicked. Inherited sin fills the totality of our being and gushes forth in acts of sin. Because of this inborn corruption, the natural man is totally unable to do anything spiritually good. This makes all men unable to respond to God. And we're talking about inability. I also equate depravity with the inability to do anything about your situation. This spiritual inability means that the sinner is so spiritually bankrupt that he can do nothing pertaining to his spiritual life, which includes salvation. Now, people are going to quickly point out that we as humans have wonderful qualities and can perform kind and virtuous acts. But my question is, compared to whom? Compared to whom? If we compare ourselves with others, With man, man is the standard, then yes, we can do good things. I have done better things in my life than Hitler did with his. But we're not just talking about the virtuous acts or admirable qualities. We're talking about things in the spiritual realm. We're talking about God's viewpoint and God's standard. When we do that, we realize the unsaved sinner is incapable of the good that pleases God. What does Isaiah 64, 6 say? All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. The good works that the unsaved performs are nothing more more than sold undergarments offered to God. 
Let's see the state that unsaved man is in and see if he can respond to the gospel. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We want to first look at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. This is our condition before salvation. Starting in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now I've heard those that hold to Armenian theology say that salvation is like a gift, and it is. But they will give this analogy about a gift of salvation. God has this gift of salvation and He's holding it out to you. And all that you need to do is reach and take that by faith. Take the gift. That is what I was taught in college. That's what I was taught in my younger years. And I've recently heard the analogy used. But the problem is that's not a biblically based analogy. With Ephesians 2 in mind, let's picture the analogy as biblical. So you have a gift for someone. You drive to where this person is at, you go up into the building, you walk down the aisle to the casket in which they are laying, and you hold out the gift to this dead person and say, take the gift. All you have to do is take the gift and it's yours. That's what the gift of salvation is like because we are dead spiritually. Dead in trespasses and sin. We do not have the ability to reach out and take this spiritual gift. What have you seen dead men do? They do nothing. They can do nothing. What can spiritually dead people do in the spiritual realm? They can do nothing. They are dead. Listen, the Holy Spirit... If, if this means something other than what it's saying, equating physical death and spiritual death, the Holy Spirit is a very poor teacher if He states that the unsaved is spiritually dead, but He intended for us to come away with the idea that He's still partially alive and can respond to spiritual truth. Hold your place there in Ephesians and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. If the Holy Spirit could have made one mistake describing our spiritual condition as dead, instead of saying that we have some partial life that enables us to respond spiritually, then it would seem that he also made another mistake in Colossians chapter 2, which he didn't. He didn't. He's the best teacher that there is. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. Notice with me some important things about Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. Once again, the Holy Spirit, who is God, who cannot lie, says that we're dead. 
but it also makes clear who imparts spiritual life. According to Colossians 2, who made you alive? God. You're spiritually dead, and it is God who makes you spiritually alive. Now back in Ephesians chapter 2, you see the same thing there. It gives us our conditions that we, what we were prior to salvation. It says we were dead in trespasses and sin. Our pattern of living, how we walked is we followed after this world. We're under the power of Satan. We lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we're children of wrath. And then it says this in verse 4, But Jonathan and his spark of faith turned and accepted the gift of salvation. It doesn't say that, does it? Who is the one doing the work here, me or God? It says in verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He, talking about God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's all about Him. He's the central focus of this salvation that's wrought in me. It's God who makes dead men come alive. It's not you and what you can produce within yourself. That is clear from these verses. There is nothing there that says, I do it. Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 make clear that the reason you are able to respond to the gospel is because God takes something that is dead and He makes it alive. You are regenerated and then are capable of responding. This is the main difference between Armenian theology and Calvinistic theology. Man is ultimately at the heart of salvation in Armenian theology, but the Bible puts God squarely in the center of salvation. We are spiritually dead, and only God can make us spiritually alive. We cannot do it ourselves, for dead men do nothing. We're kind of like a pond. A pond is filled with all sorts of pollutants. It's got styrofoam and tires and motor oil all around it and in it. Uh, That pond can sit there for a hundred years. And you know what that pond's still going to be? It's still going to be polluted. It can't clean itself. It has no ability to clean itself. Something on the outside, something outside of that has to act upon that pond to clean it. People have to go in and filter the water and haul off the tires and the garbage and the styrofoam. We are the same way spiritually. Something that is totally corrupt can't clean itself. It says this in Job 14.4, Who can bring a clean thing out of unclean? There is not one. No one has the power to purify themselves. Only God can do that. Now, that doesn't mean that I am incapable of, quote-unquote, good works. I can still help little old ladies across the street. I can work in soup kitchens. I can give money to good things, religious things. But I have no spiritual ability within myself to cleanse myself from my sin. Because I'm dead spiritually. I must have someone outside of me who is God, to act upon my heart and mind to bring that spiritual change and give me spiritual life. 
Now, in Armenian theology, they would not equate total depravity with total inability. They would say that man is in a bad way. He's in a bad situation. He's in an ocean of sin, but he is capable of grabbing the lifeline that is thrown to him. This is where Armenian theology, I believe, disregards this idea that man is spiritually dead, as Scripture clearly teaches. Dave Hunt, in his book, I don't know if you're familiar with him, the book's title is What Love Is This, says that if we are dead, then we could not only not believe and obey God, but we could not even disbelieve and disobey God, for a dead man cannot do anything at all. What Hunt is really doing here is brushing aside, well actually what he's doing is disregarding the biblical teaching on spiritual death. In short, he's saying the Bible talks about spiritual death, but I don't believe that's what it's saying. Listen, when God says we're spiritually dead, he doesn't mean that we cannot do anything at all. But he does mean that we cannot do anything spiritually good at all. The Armenian will point out that we do good works and therefore we're able to respond spiritually to the gospel with our own faith. But that is not biblical teaching on spiritual death. Spiritual death means that you are spiritually dead and you cannot respond to spiritual things. That does not mean that a physically alive person cannot do some good works. But those good works, those good acts in the sight of God, as we have said, are filthy rags because the person is spiritually dead. They can never earn their salvation with a lifetime of good work. King David said in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about some infidelity or adultery on his mother's part. He's talking about inherited sin. In Psalm 58.3, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And because we are born in sin and by nature spiritually dead, Jesus taught that all men must be born again if they are to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 3 that you must be born again. Turn there, please, so that you can see this. Notice how God, the Holy Spirit, equates these things to things that you can't control. If you're spiritually dead, you can't do anything. You have to be spiritually birthed from above. And so they're relating these things to things that we can understand. The Holy Spirit's relating spiritual death to physical death. is relating spiritual birth to physical birth. Let me ask you something about your birth. How much did you have to do with your physical birth? Did you choose your parents that you were going to be born to? Did you choose the nation, the state, the county that you were going to be born in? No, we did not. So once again, the Holy Spirit is a very poor teacher if He's using physical birth as an example of spiritual birth. But He's not a poor teacher. Look at verse 3 of John 3. And I'll read through verse 5. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Just as we had nothing to do with our physical birth, it is the same with our spiritual spiritual birth. And the point in verse 8 where Jesus says, he, he goes on down and he says, where the wind blows, where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows and the mind can't comprehend it. You hear it. You see and witness its effects, but you don't control it. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, who's, who's saved. Salvation takes place. It's the Spirit's, God's work in the heart of people that cause them to be born again. And you may not understand it, but you do see the effects of a person who is truly in Christ. One that has been born from above by the Spirit. There's a difference there. So all mankind is spiritually dead and cannot respond to the truth. They must be born again, which is a work of the Spirit that we don't understand. Listen, you and I have an inherited sin nature. We're dead in trespasses and sin. We must be born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. But we also have a mind problem. We're really bad shape. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2.14. In and of ourselves, we cannot even comprehend the truth that is necessary to believe the gospel. Our mind is so corrupted that we can't even understand spiritual truths of Scripture without God's help. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and look at verse 14. It says there, but a natural man, the unsaved man, does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined or appraised. What the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying is that not only the spiritual, the saved person, they're the ones that understand spiritual matters. The natural man, the unsaved man, cannot understand spiritual things. The Bible makes clear that spiritually dead people cannot understand spiritual truth. How is a person who is spiritually dead, unable to understand spiritual truth, unable to birth themselves from above by the Spirit, how can they respond to spiritual truth about Jesus Christ? They cannot. For they are totally depraved. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see that these are not my thoughts. That these are sourced from the Word of God. Ephesians 4 verses 17 through 19. A description of our thinking before Christ. Ephesians 4 17 through 19. Therefore I say... And testify in the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness." 
Spiritually dead people walk in darkness. Their minds, their thinking is twisted. Their understanding is in the dark and they have a hard heart. Ephesians 5.8 says, At one time we were in darkness. In Titus 1.15 it says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. This is the diagnosis, and it is a fatal diagnosis. We are totally corrupt, totally depraved, and have no ability whatsoever to respond to God because of the totality of the corruption within us. Listen, it is impossible to obey the command to be born again when John 8.44 tells us that you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. We read earlier in Ephesians 2 where it says that the unbeliever follows the prince of the power of the air. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that they are in the snare of the devil. 1 John 3.10 says it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Also in 1 John 5, it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus said in John 8, 34, that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 20 says you were slaves of sin. Titus 3, 3 says we are slaves to various passions and pleasures. So the unsaved person is a child of Satan, and they are in bondage, enslaved to sin. Listen, my friends, it takes a supernatural work of God to move you from Satan's family to God's family, to be adopted into the family of God. You and I do not have that kind of power. How can someone who is enslaved and in bondage, chained to sin, free themselves? They don't have the tools. They don't have the resources to do so. Their thinking is so twisted, as we saw in Ephesians 4, that they can't even understand the hopelessness of their situation. How could they then decide that they need to make a change and turn to Christ? I used to listen to some not-so-good music growing up in my teenage years, and a lot of those people are really old now, and a lot of them are dying. Mm -hmm. And I am amazed. I am amazed to hear some. I've seen some that had uh, cancer and were dying, and they only had a few weeks to live. And they're not terrified. They're not terrified of dying. The life that they live and the wickedness that they promoted and lived in, they're not terrified. I would be terrified to know that that's the way I've lived and now I'm going to die. I know I've got something coming on the other side of that. And the reason they're not terrified is they don't even realize the horrible situation that they're in. The Scripture makes it clear that if we are left to ourselves in our dead, darkened state, in bondage to sin and Satan, we're unable to repent and believe the gospel, and we don't see the need to. We have no power within ourselves to change our nature or to prepare ourselves for salvation. Jeremiah 13.23 reminds us of this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. 
It is in our nature to do evil. It would be easier for someone to change the color of their skin or to change the leopard spots than it would be for a person to change their nature. In fact, it means that it's impossible for you and I to change our nature. Jesus said in Matthew 6 that a diseased tree can't bring forth good fruit. An unbeliever cannot produce something spiritual because they are diseased, decayed at the core. Now I want to press this, the idea that total depravity equals total inability. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I want you to look at verse 44 of John 6. Carrie Hardy said that for these truths, you either have to twist Scripture or just completely deny it altogether because it is so clear. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The verse is crystal clear. Because of our condition, we are unable to come to Christ. It is not us and our faith. It is God and His grace that draws us to Christ and makes us alive in Him. Without the work of God to draw us to Christ, none would be saved. But you might say, well, there's... That verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Armenians like to use that as a proof text that it's up to man to believe, but it's not a proof text for that. All it states is those that believe will have everlasting life. My question is, how does one believe? There's nothing in that verse that says that you do it. We have learned from a multiplicity of other Scripture passages that for a person to believe, God has to do the work. John 6, look at verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Those that believe and have everlasting life in John 3.16 are the ones that have been granted that by the Father and have been drawn by the Father to Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 4.7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That is what I want to say to those that are involved in Armenian theology. You boast of something, salvation, as if you did something to get it. You did nothing to get it. It's all of grace. God's goal, God's goal was to remove man's boasting to make sure that the proper person got the glory. Him. Turn back to Ephesians 2 so you can see this. Ephesians 2, and look in verses... 4 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Remember, first three verses are a description before we come to Christ. 
And then this is what takes place. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's saying in the coming ages that God might show His surpassing riches of His grace. This has the idea that believers are trophies of grace. God is not going to be walking around the halls of heaven and say, look, here's Jonathan Hamilton. He is a trophy of his own faith that he mustered up inside of himself. He saw his desperate need for Christ and he turned and repented. Now what God's going to say is he's going to say, look at Jonathan Hamilton. He was a wretched, miserable sinner. He could do nothing to save himself and I saved him. Because my salvation is all about Him. It's about His grace. We say that salvation is by grace alone. If it is by grace alone, then it wasn't by my merit or by my faith or anything in me. It was totally of grace. Is this not what the passage we have just read makes clear? It tells us that faith and grace are gifts from God and that it wasn't of our doing. It wasn't by our works, so we have no reason to boast. We are His creation and His workmanship. Now let me draw this to a close by answering a few objections to total depravity. If we are totally depraved, we are unable to respond to truth. If no one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father draws him, then why does God command everyone to believe on Jesus? Why command the impossible? When God commands us to do something, shouldn't we assume that we can obey His command? Listen, the offer of salvation to all is a sincere offer. God is sincere when He offers salvation to all who repent and believe. It is true that whosoever may come to Jesus. God commands us to believe in Jesus. It says in 1 John 3.23, And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. But left to ourselves, we will never obey Him and come to Christ. He freely offers life to all in Christ, but the freeness and sincerity of the invitation demonstrates the obstinance and depravity of those that refuse it. And listen, when humans reject God's gracious offer of forgiveness through Christ, that refusal makes it obvious that Christ is just when He condemns the unrepentant. What does Jesus say in John 3.19? He says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the life because their works are evil. Men deliberately choose to do evil, and there are far-reaching consequences to this. They love darkness, and they refuse light. 
God has given the law, and the law reflects the character of God. And what does man continually prove over and over again? He proves he has no intentions of repenting and obeying God's law. Man cannot come to God because he will not come. Sin is debilitating. It is slaving in its effects. And it renders one unable to respond. Disobedience to God leads to a moral inability to obey and hear Him. And that makes us responsible and brings us under God's judgment. Jonathan Edwards said this when it comes to total depravity. No man is condemned properly because he is unable, but because he is unwilling. And one final point I want to make this morning. We must learn our inability. That is an indispensable first step in salvation. Keeping God's law was never intended to be the way of salvation. One of the main reasons that He gave us His law is to make people give up on the idea of earning salvation by their works. When God gave us a command and we cannot obey it and keep it perfectly, we realize we are unable and we have to look to Him for help and for grace. As long as we think we are well, we will never go to the doctor. Perhaps you think that you can live how you want to and enjoy sin in your life and then be able to quickly and easily take care of that by just simply believing. Anyone who thinks that they can put off salvation to the end of their life and then exercise faith does not understand their desperate condition that they're in. Because our situation is so bleak, because our case is so dire, God requires you to do something that you cannot do unless He draws you. You cannot make yourself believe what you think to be foolish. You cannot make yourself to love light when you love darkness. You must be born again and you cannot give birth to yourself. This idea that it's all up to you and that you're the master of your fate, when you study the Scriptures, you realize that it is by grace. Now let me say this. If you feel the weight of your sin and you feel the need for Jesus, that is evidence that God is working in your heart. Don't push that down. Don't clutter up your mind so that that goes away. I heard a message from John MacArthur, and I've never forgot it. On John 3, some years back, I was listening to this. It may have been at a shepherd's conference. I can't remember. He did this entire exposition of why salvation doesn't come from men, why it's all about God. And at the end of the sermon, he says, so what do you do if you're an unsaved person? We've clearly demonstrated from the text of Scripture that you cannot save yourself. It's a work of God. So how do you make salvation happen? You can't. MacArthur says this, Let me tell you what you can do. You can do what any sinner can do. You can ask. Yes. You can ask God in His mercy and His grace to give you light and life. And mystery of mysteries, Jesus said, To him that comes to me, I will never turn away. He said, Seek and you will find. Ask and it will be open, be given to you. Knock and the door will be open. You can ask. Ask for His grace and mercy. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truths of your word. They can be hard truths, but when we start to see our condition and understand what we are in your eyes, 
it, it gives us a better understanding of these doctrines of grace and of total depravity. Thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. Work in your people's hearts. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.